0: It's Friday. I'm Chloe Veltman here with NPR's Book of the Day podcast. On deck today, a pair of novels both related to the Second World War, Luis Alberto Urrea's Goodnight Irene and the postcard by Anne Berest, have another thing in common. They're both based on real life characters and events. In a bit, we'll hear more about Urrea's intriguing book, inspired by his mother's contribution to a little known piece of wartime history. She was part of a corps of women, widely known as the Donut Dollies, who drove around dispensing treats and good vibes to American troops. Up first, though, a conversation between NPR's Scott Simon and Anne Berest, the author of a moving and powerful novel, originally written in French, that traces the author's family history to the Holocaust. Beres tells Simon that even though the postcard is based on real-life events, she calls her book, quote, a true novel, because it contains some fictionalised details. The author says she didn't use real names of people whose behaviour led to suffering during the war because she doesn't want their living descendants to face repercussions. Here's Scott Simon.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu.
2: Arrives at the Berest home in Paris in January of 2003. A photo of the Opera Garnier is on the front, on the back, no message, just four names written in ballpoint pen Yves, Emma, Noemi, and Jacques. The names were of writer Anne Beres' maternal great grandparents and their children who had died in Auschwitz. But it takes 16 more years for her to try to find out who sent that postcard and why and what that story discloses about her family. Anne Beres, The Postcard, was a huge bestseller in France and has now been published in the United States. And uh, Anne Beres joins us now from New York. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Why is this a novel? It's also a real story.
3: It's a novel, but I often say it's a true novel because all the events are true. But I wanted to write it in a novelistic way. For example, I changed the name of the village where my family were arrested because I didn't want that the inhabitants of this village now had trouble because of my book. I changed the name of uh, people who bad behaved. Uh, during the war, because I didn't want the grandchildren of these people had the trouble now, and that people say, okay, I know that your grandfather your grandmother uh, denounced Jewish during the war. So that's why I called it a novel, because I took the liberty as a writer to change little things.
2: That's very generous of you. You didn't want the grandchildren of people who did harm to your family, to suffer today.
3: Yes, exactly.
2: The um, story traces back to uh, Emma and Ephraim Rabinovich. Does their experience remind us that the Holocaust didn't stand out alone? It was the culmination of centuries of anti-Semitism all over Europe.
3: You have to understand the silence of the Jews uh, in France uh, after the Second World War, because after the war, uh, they were afraid to speak out because uh, one must bear in mind that they were still living in fear because that fear was so ancient in Europe. They thought that The denunciations could start again. My grandmother, after the war, baptized my mother in a church to protect her. And many Jews did the same in France after the war. So in the book, I give the example of one of my friends whose parents changed their Jewish names to French names in the mid-60s. It's incredible to think about it. It was the mid-60s in France, and Jews wanted to change their names because they'd always said it can happen again.
2: There are sections of the book, especially about life and death in Auschwitz, that are very detailed and difficult to read. You talk about the ways in which prisoners were humiliated and brutalized and lied to up until the moment they were in the gas chambers. Was it especially important to you to tell people about those details?
3: Yes, because this book for me is a book of transmission. If a teenager today reads a a novel and he, he loves a novel, it means that one day he will open a historical book the historical passages were particularly difficult to narrate in the book i'm not a historian but i worked as an historian i read all the books i could i watched all the documentaries i could i want to say that there is not a single sentence in these passages that is invented. I simply want it to be the link between yesterday's witnesses and today's readers.
2: According to the Anti Defamation League, anti Semitic incidents are on the rise in the United States, they're on the rise in Europe. This is 80 years after the Holocaust where the world saw where that could lead. Why do you think anti-Semitism is on the rise again?
3: It's a big question, and, you know, I'm not a historian. As a writer, I can say that now I'm still afraid when I see all the signals in our society.
2: What signals do you see in French society or America?
3: I can't uh, speak about America because I never speak about things I don't really know. In France, yes, I can say that I hear and I see people uh, becoming paranoiac against uh, Jews, even in a part of society that you couldn't imagine. Even, for example, in my uh, literary world, I can see and hear things that I couldn't imagine before and that they are very, very dangerous. And when I was a child and I heard all Jews say, OK, be careful, Antisemitism will uh, come back again. I thought it was wrong, but now I know that they were true.
2: What um, do the discoveries That Anne, in your novel and in your life, makes about her past and her Judaism put into her life today?
3: Before I wrote this book, I knew nothing about my ancestors. And uh, while working uh, on my family tree, I discovered a lot of things, a lot of some strange coincidences. Uh, that I explain in the book, and I will not uh, uh, spoil it. But these coincidences are, for me, invisible transmissions, you see, that things that, that your ancestors give to you and you don't know. And this idea of invisible transmission is one of the main theme of my book. And I have read articles on cellular memory, you see, how ourselves have a memory of the emotions. It's a scientific way to explain that our ancestors still live within us and that we still communicate and connect with our ghosts. It seems that in my case and with my Jewish family, they are not totally dead. They were not totally murdered because something still lives in me.
2: Anne Berest, her novel, The Postcard, translated by Tina Cover, has now been published in America. Thank you so much for being with us.
4: Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Live right, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
0: Our next book takes a completely different angle on wartime history. Pulitzer Prize finalist Luis Alberto Urrea wrote his novel Goodnight Irene as a way to celebrate his mother and resurface the long forgotten story of the women who helped the Allies beat the Nazis with coffee and doughnuts. The lively discussion with NPR's Scott Simon delves into why the author felt he couldn't make this a non-fiction book and how the events of World War II shaped the futures of both his mother and her best friend Jill in startlingly different ways. Let's go once again to Scott Simon.
2: Luis Alberto Urrea, please tell us about the photo. Three women smiling at the front of your new novel, Good Night Irene. Well, my
4: mother was in... uh... Clubmobile Corps for the Red Cross during World War II. And they were known in the vernacular as donut dollies. And these women uh, drove two and a half ton GMC trucks with galleys on the back with uh, donut cookers and coffee machines and record players all along Patton's route with the Third Army, but have been forgotten by history. So, In honor of my mother and her best friend, Jill, who drove the truck, I decided to to bring them back.
2: Luis Alberto Urrea, who's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Nonfiction, turned to fiction to tell the story inspired by his mother, Phyllis McLaughlin, and her friends. He joins us now. Luis, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thank you, sir.
2: The lead characters of your novel, Irene, eh, kind of your mother... And and Dorothy, uh, kind of Jill. Yeah. They have different backgrounds, but they shared the hazards of the front lines, didn't they?
4: Oh, they certainly did. Yeah, they couldn't have been more different. You know, my mother was a Manhattan socialite, had a a kind of a Greer Garson obsession. You know, she thought she was a 40s movie star. She called everyone, darling. (laughs) And Jill was a very realistic Hoosier woman, you know, from Indiana, very intelligent. And, uh, you know, I think they became each other's rolling sanctuary under duress. Mm. You're a a great novelist when you've turned
2: your hand to fiction. And, you know, you you should write a great novel. But even if you wanted to make this a nonfiction story, you, you found that would have been difficult.
4: Yeah, I couldn't have done it because the records are gone. The records building the Red Cross had with all of the the Clubmobile core information burned down, I believe, in the early 70s. And also most, if not all, of the World War II donut dollies have passed on. Mm -hmm. So um, we thought Jill was dead. My mother had suffered a terrible, at the end of the war, uh, wounding. And uh, it involved an awful crash in the Bavarian Alps off the side of a cliff. And the only thing she would say about it is, we never found the other girl. Mm. And I thought, the other girl, that must have been her. It must have been Jill, this this darling Jill she always talked about. And it wasn't. You know, as we were researching, we found materials written by Jill, Jill Pitts Snappenberger, And through some investigation, we found that she was alive. She was 94 at the time. And when she got on the phone with me, she said, You must come see me, but don't wait until I turn 95 if you catch my drift. <laughs> oh my God. And so I thought, I'm already in love with this woman. We went down there. And when she let us in the house, there was a portrait of my mom on the wall, <sighs> looking like a 40s movie star. And she said the thing that launched the book. She said, "I drove the truck, but your mother brought the joy."
2: Let me ask you to talk about some of the toughest stuff—the yeah. the hell that indeed they went through. Because yeah. um, the young women in the clubmobile were at the front lines. They were part confessor. They were crushes. They were object of desire. They were maternal substitutes.
4: Yes. A lot to carry. I think it was too much, honestly. Um, The way I came into this story was twofold. One was my mother's nightmares. She had terrible nightmares, and she was scarred from her wounding at the end of the war. Her legs were—her upper legs were just torn apart. Um, But the other thing was that she had an Army footlocker that the Army provided her. Um, even though she was Red Cross. And within it were, was stuff that she had brought back from the war. And I had strict orders never to open it. And you know what it's like being a boy. You know, as soon as mom's gone, you open the trunk. And inside was a folio of photos she had taken at Buchenwald. Patton asked them to accompany them to liberate Buchenwald. They didn't know what they were getting into. And uh, she took photographs of the corpses on the ground, and she told me, I took those pictures until I grew ashamed of taking those pictures. And she said, but I have been ashamed every day of my life since that I didn't keep taking pictures, that I stopped. I don't think they expected to be at the front lines. Yeah. so, yeah, they, they saw everything. And they were, I think, expected to keep the boys hopeful, you know, give them a taste of home. Um, so, of course, coffee and donuts. They would passed out chewing gum. They passed out candy bars. They sometimes brought mail. You know, with that little record player, they would play the hits for them over the loudspeaker. And they were fully aware that, many of those boys that they were flirting with or feeding, they would never see again. That they might be the last friendly faces those boys ever saw. And I think the toll of that was quite heavy. I mean, um, you carry that forever, don't you? Uh, There are different responses, which I find interesting. My mother was kind of destroyed by it. And um, I think it drove her mad by the end of her life. Um Jill was a completely different creature. Had it together, you know, like I said we met her at when she was 94, she lived to 102. And uh, she was just a fountain of information and when she got overwhelmed, which she did sometimes, she would put her hand over her eyes and say, "I'm going to be sad now."
3: Hmm.
4: And it lasted 30 seconds, 40 seconds, and then she'd put her hand down and go on. She had everything put in its place, and my mother couldn't keep it contained.
2: What do you hope readers of this fine novel will uh, will learn from your characters, thinly described, uh, your mother and her
4: friend? The response of women so far has been overwhelming, and beautiful, and heartbreaking. And you know, I I just I I keep telling everybody, our worst sin. I think, is writing mom off, writing granny off, writing Aunt Eva off. And when I talk to young folks, I tell them, your mother keeps telling you that dang story you're so sick of hearing. One day she will be gone, and you will wish to God you'd paid attention because you've let that piece of important history disappear. So, you know, I guess just a a thank you and a, a tribute to these women who shouldn't be forgotten. Luis Alberto
2: Urrea, his novel, Good Night, Irene. Luis, thank you so much for being
4: with us. Thank you, Scott. It's always a privilege to talk to you.
0: Well, that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Chloe Veltman. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Meyer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Barry Gordimer, Rina Advani, Tinbeat Hermias, Lena Mohammed, Samantha Balaban, Ed McNulty, Danny Hensel, Shannon Rhodes, Gabriel Donatov, and Hiba Ahmad. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening.